All right, hello and welcome to Encounter Church. We're so glad that you could be here with us today. My name is Daniel. I serve on the speaking team here at Encounter. As always, it is a blessing and a privilege to be able to bring the word of God to you today. Hey, Dirk's on an adventure in Europe right now. So if he crosses your mind, just keep him in your prayers that he may have a time of joy and relaxation. Um, he'll be coming back soon. So um, in a couple of weeks, the tight shirt and the better preaching will be back. Don't worry. Um, but until then, you're stuck with me. Uh, today, we're going to continue on in our conversation about how God is not. Right, we're going to talk about um, who God is, who the Bible says God is, and who we want him to be. And we're going to identify that. We're going to deconstruct that. We're going to find out what that means for our lives and our spirituality going forward. So before we get into that, I want to start off, just to get the ball rolling, ask a question that you might have. I want to ask a question that you might have asked yourself at some point in your life. The question is this, it's very simple. Have you ever tried to be a good Christian? And I'm not saying like good Christian, like good Christian. I'm actually saying, have you ever tried to live a life that is in accordance to God's will and God's purpose? And you just feel like sometimes God doesn't show up. And it's just fine if God doesn't show up, but sometimes it almost feels like God is actively preventing you from doing good things. And you have to ask yourself, why? Like as a Christian, we're called to like minister to other people, right? So like maybe you have a friend, maybe you have a coworker, maybe you have a relative, maybe you have a family member that you've been just asking God to do something in their life so that they may come to know him. And you've been praying and you've been asking them to come to church on like Easter or like Christmas for the past couple of years. And every single time you approach them and you ask them, you get a resounding no. And you ask God, why is this happening? I thought you wanted this. I thought this was for your glory. I thought this was for your kingdom. So why is it that you won't show up? God, I need you. I need you to show up. Where are you? Maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe it's a relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's a relationship with your parents. Maybe it's a relationship with your kid. And we know as Christians we are called to live in community and to grow together. And by growing together, we grow closer to Christ so that when things go wrong, we can fall back on each other. And that's all great until some of these relationships fall apart. And we're just trying our best and asking God to mend these broken relationships. Isn't this what you want, God? Where are you? Why won't you show up? God, he had such a bright future ahead of him. She had all the hopes and dreams of the world. Yet when they needed you the most, when they were staring death in the face, you didn't show up. God, where were you? I think these are fair questions to ask God, especially if we're trying our best to do good by God. Like if we're doing something bad, if we're living not in accordance to God's will, and if we're living a life that is uh, counterproductive to what God is trying to do in his kingdom, then it makes total sense that God would set up road barriers and, and speed bumps and stop signs to stop us from progressing. But when we're trying our best, 
when we're trying our best to move the kingdom forward, when we're trying our best to live out a life that we think pleases God, and we get a strong, resounding no, if you've been in that place, if you know what I'm talking about, then you know where Abraham is at. So friends, please grab a Bible. There's some underneath your seats. If you like them, take them home with you. The words will also be on the screen behind me. I just want to set up the context of how this conversation is taking place between Abraham and God before we move forward. So Abraham just found out that two cities are going to get annihilated, right? This is kind of a big deal. Like God's like, they're wicked. We're wiping them out. And Abraham's like, wait, and then this is where the conversation takes place. So if you will, Genesis 18, verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is such an interesting passage to me, right? Because somebody is going toe-to-toe with God. Somebody stands up and sees that this is probably not who God is, or at least under, in his imagination, this is not what God does. God just doesn't blindly wipe out righteous people. So he goes toe-to-toe with God. And he's asking God to do good. It's usually the other way around, isn't it? Where God is asking us to do good and God is asking us to live a righteous life. But Abraham sees something. He has a pure heart. He goes to God and asks, why? If there's righteous people in the city, why would you wipe them away? I mean, if you think about it from a statistical standpoint, right? 50 people versus like the thousands and thousands and thousands of like wicked people in that city. 50 doesn't sound like that much. But Abraham goes to God and says, these are people that committed their lives to you. These are people that have committed to follow you and follow you through thick and through thin. God, you are not the type of God that treats these people like collateral damage. So why is this happening? I think Abraham approaches this with a pure heart. Abraham approaches this with a good intention. But we also know that Abraham had one more intention. If you read Genesis 14, if you read Genesis 19, we know the narrator tells us that Abraham had family in the cities that were to to be destroyed. His nephew Lot and their whole family was there. So there's a part of me that thinks that when Abraham is crying out for mercy, when Abraham is crying out to God for these 50 righteous people, he cares about them, but what he ultimately cares about more is the three or four people that is his family, the people that he loves. That's who he's looking out for. So in, in verse 26, when the Lord says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake, I have to believe. I have to believe that a- Abraham, for the briefest moment, felt relief. That there was a chance that his family was going to make it out. That there was a chance that if there's any righteous people, if there's any godly people in this city, that they too would be spared. And I think that brief calmness went away when a terrifying fear and thought came entered into his mind What happens if there isn't 50? 
So he continues on with this proposition. Verse 27, Abraham spoke again, Now I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy this entire city for the lack of five people? And God doesn't miss a beat. He says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. And Abraham's like, okay, 45, that's not bad, but it's not great. Maybe I could push my luck a little bit more. Verse 29, once again he spoke to him, what if there's only 40 that are found there? And God responds, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Abraham continues, and then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if there are only 30 that can be found there? God answers, I will not do it if I find 30. Abraham says, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And God says, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then finally, Abraham says, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. What if there are just 10 righteous people in the city? And God answers, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking to Abraham, God left and Abraham returned home. I want to make a few points here. Okay, I want to make a few points in this interaction between Abraham and God. The first thing that stands out to me is that Abraham had the courage. Abraham almost had the audacity to go toe-to-toe with God and negotiate with him. Just like so many other prophets in the Bible, so just like so many other biblical leaders like Moses, like Amos, like Elijah, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, Abraham goes to God and says, God, have mercy on these people. I know they don't deserve your grace. I know they don't deserve your love. But God, please spare them. Look, forget about Abraham for a second, okay? Here at Encounter Church, we have a couple of values. Our first value, and I think one of our most important values, is that we are called to bring people far from God to new life in Christ. And what that means, or a way that that could be interpreted, is that at some point in our journey with God, we're like less concerned with our own salvation and our own well-being, and we have the courage, like Abraham, to step in on behalf of other people and to live a life that is simply beyond us. At some point in our Christian journey, a mature Christian, a radical Christian, lives a life that is beyond them. We have another value here at Encounter Church is that we do life together. When that means festivals and carnivals and sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and ice cream, that is all great, but we also do life together when things get rough. We also believe that a burden shared is a burden divided, that when our neighbors are hurting, that pain is our pain, that when our friends have loss, that loss is our loss that we do this whole thing together. So the first point, my friends, is that as we navigate through this Christian life, dare to be brave to step on behalf of other people. Dare to be brave to ask God for mercy even though someone else doesn't deserve it. The second point that I want to make is more of an inquiry, something that I've kind of been imagining. I always wonder why Abraham stopped at 10. Has anybody else wondered that? Like, if you're going to push your luck that much, I mean, talk about, like, give a mouse a cookie, right? If you're going to push your luck that much, might as well take it down to one, right? Might as well take it down to one and give yourself the best chance possible that the wicked would not be destroyed. 
that the city would be saved and they have a chance to repent. But Abraham stops at 10, and I have no reason to, I have, no one knows why Abraham stops at 10. There's like guesses and theories out there. Like some people think like Abraham was to like think like and put together a list of like 10 people that he thinks would like pass the test, right? Like, okay, yeah, like Jerry and his family, but like they're like a soft yes. I guess Steve will make it. Like if his family gets added to the list plus my family, like add that together and maybe you get 10, right? Some, some people think that's the case. I tend to disagree. I honestly believe that as, as Abraham and God is going back and forth in the negotiations, Abraham comes to realize slowly but surely something that God knew all along. That in the city, there's not a single person who is righteous. Now that's like, a, that's like kind of tough to swallow. You're thinking there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the city. Like statistically speaking, there has to at least be 10, right? There has to like at least be one. And I'm, I'm right there with you. Like earlier this week, I was like telling myself that. So to help us like frame this more um, vividly, I want us to all go on a thought experiment and, and a bit of a journey together, okay? Imagine you're sitting at your house tonight and you're just sitting on the couch and like God appears, poof, right there. And you're like, whoa. And God's like, look, this whole Grand Rapids thing, I don't like it. Like the construction, like a whole bunch of stuff is happening that's just like not cool. It's wicked people. We're just going to wipe it off the face of Michigan. And you're like, whoa, 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 time out. Point number one, step in on behalf of other people. I just learned this. So you're like, you're like advocating for all of us. Like, God, what if there's righteous people here? What if there's just 50 righteous people? Will you spare the city? And God's like, you know what? If there's 50 righteous people, if there's 50 people that could stand in front of me, guiltless, on their own merit, then I'll save the city. What are the chances do you think that we'd make it to tomorrow? 45? 40? 30? 20? 10? Is there a single person in your life that on their own merit can stand before God and appear blameless and purely righteous? Friends, it's no surprise then that in the next chapter, on verse 27, it says, Early in the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Abraham stood on top of that mountain. What possibly couldn't be it? What possibly couldn't be God's will turned out that God was just and the city had been destroyed? And Abraham is thinking, my family was in there and my family was destroyed. But the beautiful thing about this story is that that actually wasn't the case. That's just simply what Abraham thought. If you read chapter 19, you know that God sent messengers and God saved Lot and his entire family. And before like the fire and brimstone thing happened, they were able to get out of the city. Like they made it. And if that's the case, then I have to ask the million dollar question, why didn't God let Abraham know? Didn't he at least deserve an explanation? Didn't he at least deserve some sort of reassurance that Lot and his family made it out? But that doesn't happen. Abraham just sits there. We have no reason to believe that Abraham even ever found out that his family made it out of that city. The story just continues on to the next chapter, the next chapter of Abraham's life and the next chapter of Genesis. Like he's talking to some king in in chapter 20. 
And you're like, God, why didn't you let him know? Doesn't he deserve an explanation? Doesn't he deserve reassurance? And the tough reality and the truth of it all, friends, the answer to that question is no. God didn't owe Abraham an explanation. God didn't owe Abraham anything. What God called Abraham to do is to obey his commands, to trust in the process, to know that he is good, and to know that he will ultimately see things through. That's what Abraham was called to. This frustrates me so much. This frustrates me because I feel like we're in the same place as Abraham, where we're called to do great and amazing things for the kingdom. And oftentimes you're trying to obey and you're trying to follow God. And there's these roadblocks, there's these stop signs, there's these mountains blocking the way. And you're like, God, why? At least give me an explanation. At least give me some reassurance. And God's like, I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you reassurance. I don't owe you an explanation. I just need you to trust me and trust the process that things will work out the way that they're supposed to. And that frustrates me so much that we just simply need to have faith that God will see us through like he did with Abraham. Friends, look what it says on verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he explained to Abraham? He reassured Abraham? No, it says he simply remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. I'm, I'm so confused by this passage because if you think, if, think about it like logically, it should be like God remembered Lot, therefore Lot was saved, right? Like that makes a ton of sense. But it says God remembered Abraham, therefore Lot was saved. It's like Abraham eventually got what he, what he wanted. But Abraham never got congratulated Abraham never got an explanation. Abraham never even really knew that he had made a difference. But it turns out he made all the difference in the world for Lot. That trusting in the process, that having faith that God is good, that knowing that his way is the best way is frustrating, but God will see you through. Friends, this happened 4,000 years ago. Can you believe that? And to this day, I can't imagine that many things have changed. But we're called to live this life that is glorifying God. We're called to live this life that is hard and challenging. And the process might not feel safe, but that we're called to just trust that God is good and his way is the best way. You know, there are some days where that's just really easy like optimistic days, right, where you just feel great. And you're like, okay, if all I get is that God is with me and this is the process and that he is good and that he will see me through to the end, then that's all I need. Maybe that's not even all I need. Maybe that's just all I want. Some days it's hunky-dory. It's easy to follow. But friends, there are days like this upcoming Wednesday. There are days where you're just so tempted to demand more of God. 
I want an explanation. I don't understand why this is happening. God, you need to show up. Or perhaps, why didn't you show up? It's times like these when the enemy plants seeds of doubt and anger towards God. This coming Wednesday will mark four years since, it will mark four years since me and so many other people lost a beautiful soul. Her name is Chase. Some of you might know her. I first met Chase at the rock climbing wall. It just so happened that we we were also both philosophy majors and we quickly became friends. God led us to Labrie, uh, Switzerland, where we did an interim together through Calvin. One of my favorite memories of Chase, and I brought a picture of her with me, and I think that's such a beautiful picture and a representation of who she was because she just loved life and loved adventure and loved God so passionately and so much. One of my favorite memories is that we were going to go skiing as a group. And Chase, who had never been skiing before, decided not only was she going to tag along and rent skis, she was going to strap them on and try to go down a black diamond with us. And I remember as she skied down the side of that mountain, more like tumbled down the side of the mountain, the contagious laugh, of joy. She loved life so much. She's the type of friend that goes out and somehow finds $70 round-trip tickets to Rome. And now we're at the Colosseum, enjoying God's beauty, enjoying that adventure. She had so much to look forward to. So it caught everybody by surprise seven months later. When we found out that Chase, on her way back from Chicago, went for a dip in the river, went for a dip in the lake, and got swept out by a rip current and she never surfaced. That the search and rescue operation lasted for a day and a half and that it was going to become a search and recover mission. And through it all, I honestly believed, I honestly believed and had hope that God was going to show up and do something amazing. God, this possibly couldn't have been the plan. But I remember sitting at her funeral so angry and so abandoned. And I found it so hard to pray to God and worship a God that seemingly let Chase down when she needed him the most. Friends, it's been four years since that happened. And I don't even know why to this day that God allowed that to happen. I just know that my faith just took this weird stumble and it was hard and difficult to understand. At least give me a reason. At least give us an explanation for why this happened. After a couple of years, the Holy Spirit started whispering and then started shouting into my ear and a lot of people's ears at New Chase. And if you look at the life that she lived, and if you looked at the passion and the love that she had 
for God. That she'd be rolling in her grave if she found out that our faith was stumbling because of her. That she, her love for God was so pure that in a strange, tragic, beautiful way, we all stumbled in our faith with God because of her death. But because of her life and the model that she set as a Christian, we found our way back to him. Chase reminded us of the gospel. She reminded us of a man who stood in front of a grave of his own friend. And the God of the universe, at the gates of death, looking at his friend, Lazarus, for that moment, he didn't do anything supernatural. He didn't do anything amazing. The God of the universe simply stood there and he wept. He realized that this possibly couldn't be the answer. That Chase and countless stories like her, their story simply doesn't end with death. And through the resurrecting power of Christ, that we too find hope that one day we will see Chase again. And we will see those who have gone before us. And that the Christ, the name of Christ, holds the power, the resurrecting power, so that we may hope once again. Friend, look what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Friends, we have hope in the name of Jesus. The resurrecting power, the resurrecting king gives us hope that even though we don't get an explanation, even though we don't get an answer, that he will see us through, that his way is the best way to trust in the process. Friends, God is good all the time. Will you stand and pray with me? Father God, we just simply sometimes don't know. We don't know why certain things happen the way that they do or why you allow or not allow certain things. Sometimes it is so hard to just simply trust that you have it under control. But God, that is exactly what we're called to do. Give us that faith. Give us that faith to trust the process even when we don't understand. Give us that faith to know that you are good and that your way is the best way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.